Hello and welcome back to Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I'm particularly looking forward to this edition because it promises to sort of wrap up much of the effort I've been putting in over the past few months to understand South African industrial policy. My own view of our economy is that we should stick to what we're good at. Sadly, we've rather messed up the mining industry, even though commodity prices are booming now, but we haven't done the same to farming. Mining and farming are our feet, I think, on the ground, and tourism, I suppose, when we can all travel again. But the mere existence in South Africa of an automotive industry fogs up that nice little clear view of mine. Making cars is difficult and complex. The question I want to try and answer in this edition is can we do it, or can we keep on doing it? Can we stay in the automotive game? I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Justin Barnes to podcast from the edge. Dr. Barnes or Justin is the executive director of the Toyota Vessels Institute for Manufacturing Studies in Durban, and he's the leading consultant on the South African Automotive Master Plan. We've all known about Trade and Industry Minister Ibrahim Patel's master plans. Justin and a number of other academics put together the Automotive Master Plan to 2035. So he knows what he's talking about. And having read through the plan twice, a draft of it anyway, ahead of this discussion, I have to say, Justin, that it confronts the constraints to success much more frankly than the other master plans that Ibrahim Patel has produced do. And I know that you were initially commissioned by his predecessor at the DTI, Rob Davis. But can I just start by asking you, where in the automotive world are we? And can we stay there? And can we even, you know, can we grow our position? Peter, yeah, the, the question around the future of the automotive industry is obviously a pressing one for the country. Um, we've developed an automotive industry under a particular set of historical circumstances and um, are obviously confronted with the challenge of building an industry while simultaneously ensuring that the consumers of vehicles in the country are in no ways disadvantaged in terms of their access to the sort of the range of models that um, they would uh, like to consume in that market. So the master plan, as you as you point out, is a it's an honest attempt at trying to I don't know trying to square a, a round circle. But in essence, building on the historical legacy of the automotive industry in the country, emanating from our import substitution sort of era under apartheid, to the much more open economy that we have now. Um, and at the same time, ensuring that consumers have access to uh, globally competitive products uh, at the right price in the, in the domestic market. So where are we? We, depending on, on the year, we... Pre-COVID, we're sitting at number 23 in the world. So we're the 23rd biggest producer globally. We make about 0.6% of the world's motor cars, um, which sounds very small, but uh, it's still a significant number. We uh, produce, uh, pre-COVID, we were sitting at over 650,000 vehicles of, of production. Um, but that, of course, you know, is, is out of a total of 100 million. We also have relatively low levels of local content in our vehicles. So the number of vehicles we produce slightly distorts the actual value of our contribution globally, which is slightly smaller than the number of units we, um, than we produce. The industry is, as you rightly point out, it has been in a difficult position. There was actually an academic paper written in the early 2000s that essentially warned 
that the two prominent global producers that had no future were Australia and South Africa. Um, and we've obviously proven that wrong. Uh, our industry has done well uh, in spite of South Africa's poor macroeconomic performance and in spite of the fact that we've not um, necessarily structured an appropriate industrial policy structure for the country that supported industry more broadly. So the industry is a standout performer. I'd argue it's partly because of what I would consider to be some quite smart policies, policies that we had to change because they were deemed to be um, um, uh, illegal under the rules of the World Trade Organization, and hence the conversion of the MIDP to the APDP in 2013. Um, and partly because the automotive industry, as you point out, actually has no low road option. The automotive industry only has a high road option. Um, so when confronted with global competition, uh, the automotive industry has a singular choice, upgrade, upgrade, and then upgrade again. Because unlike the clothing industry or uh, furniture industry, the option of trying to compete with the Chinese by uh, essentially lowering the standards of operations, um, uh, producing uh, low quality bulk goods, that doesn't apply as an option in the automotive industry. And so that's helped us in terms of the global uh, sort of positioning of the industry. The fact that the industry is dominated by multinationals who run their plants in South Africa to the same standard as they run their plants anywhere else in the world. Uh, these are all critical elements that I think have ensured the industry sort of preeminent position in the manufacturing sector has been maintained. Uh, maybe it just helped me just a little bit. And let's go right back to the start. Why did anybody build a motor car in South Africa? What was the... What was the what was the thinking then? I mean, does it look anything like the thinking is now? It's a fascinating story, Peter, because the development of the automotive industry lies at the heart of the uh, industrial development challenge of the new South Africa. And I don't mean the new South Africa of 1994. I mean the new South Africa of 1910. So the PAC government in the 1920s um, developed you know, ISCO, ESKIM, all around that period and that's when we had our first vehicle assembly investments. Uh, General Motors and Ford invested in 1924 and 1926, and I can't remember in which order. Um, and that was the start of our automotive industry. Um, lightweight assembly out of the Canadian operations in order to take advantage of the Commonwealth preferences. Um, but essentially, we assembled imported content. And the reason for that was because the Union of South Africa then was struggling with balance of payments issues. And we uh, had a poor white problem. Um, which is why the automotive industry investments went into Utenhague PE, because that's where the poor whites were concentrated in terms of the commercialization of the farms. Um, and the industry then has a history um, of being developed um, essentially as a means to create um, a development path for, for poor whites. Um, and so we have the 1958, we have the Fulian Commission, which comes up with the first of the local content programs. Auto industry is the biggest drain on our balance of payments again after the Second World War, when we have obviously some, some pretty dramatic uh, economic growth in the economy. And um, they recommend the introduction of local content in order for those assembly operations that have been established in the country to deepen their local uh, value addition. We then go through a subsequent number of local content programs. We had six in total. They're often mentioned as if they were phases when actually they were made up as the industry progressed. Yeah. And eventually we ended up with six of them, the last one being introduced in 1989. And they were all focused on trying to 
ensure that vehicles were made in South Africa. Of course, vehicles are a very close association with the military complex. Yeah. So, you know, we forced the, the, the transmissions and the engines to be made here for trucks, for example, because those were the ones that went into our military. Um, and so the automotive industry was highly closeted, well-protected, um, never achieved scale economies, had um, a wide range of quite thin assembly with enough local content to meet whatever the government requirement was, but no more than that. Uh, obviously, in the late 70s, when the multinationals who had invested exited the country, especially when they were put under pressure from the Sullivan Code, um, we were essentially left with a range of vehicle assemblers that operated under South African capital control, with the exception of a couple of German investments, which remained German through that period. And then, of course, so when we exited uh, the apartheid era, there was a real consternation around what our industry would become because, um, and I started working in 1995 uh, as an automotive researcher as my first job. And, um, you know, one of the first things I ever read as an automotive researcher was that we had no future in, in vehicle manufacturing because uh, the general equilibrium model showed that any form of uh, liberalization of the industry would result in severe job losses and the decline of the sector. Now, in mitigation of that, the government introduced in 1995, in September, they released a program called the Motor Industry Development Program. And interestingly, Peter, you made mention of the Australian industry. The Australian industry was quite successful up until quite recently. And, and I've been to Australia many times. And as a matter of fact, I went over to go and study the closure of the industry um, just before the global financial crisis. It hadn't closed yet, but Mitsubishi was closing and Nissan had closed a couple of years before. And they were just left with, with GM and the, um, and the Toyota operation. and the 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 challenge in relation to uh, our entry into these global value chains is that we had a very small market. So the government actually copied, uh, it wasn't a direct copy, but it was a version of the button program in Australia. And what the government did is they introduced essentially a, a model built around production and consumption complementarity. So I'll use BMW as an example. Instead of South African BMW, uh, the South African BMW plant making the three, five, seven, six series, um, it would make only the three series. It would make it for the domestic market and export it. And then it would use the export credits that it earned and it would earn something called duty rebates. And those duty rebates would allow it to essentially import a balanced number of the vehicles not made in South Africa into the South African market free of duty. Yeah. And that would then result in this complementarity. Now that was actually an incredibly successful program because what it did was it allowed our vehicle assemblers to do two things. One is it allowed South African owned companies often to suddenly have a potential role for their new parent companies uh, as they were bought up by the, by, by the multinationals. As, and they identified models that could be made in South Africa for the local market and then exported as niche products, but into big markets. And of course, a niche product in a big market is still reasonable volume. And so what we saw from 1995, it didn't happen immediately, obviously, because you know, there's an investment cycle to the auto industry that sort of follows a four to eight year lag. So we saw from about 97, 98, the first responses, and then it took off from 99 onwards, where we saw the growth of, the, um, of our exports and then, of course, we also saw the opening up of the domestic market. We saw a, a large increase in imports, but those imports only existed because of exports. They were complementary to our local production footprint. And at the same time, you know, our tariffs used to be 115% on motor cars. 
Uh, they were dropped by 50% in September 1995, were made 65%, and then there was a phase down, all the way down to 25%, um, which uh, continued through until 2012. Now, the APD, the MIDP, rather, which is what it was called, was reviewed. Uh, my first exposure was uh, reviewing the MIDP in 2001 for um, Minister Alec Irwin. And subsequent to that, I've been involved in, in all of the of the subsequent reviews of the policy and the development of the of the policy. We were challenged in 2006. The Australians threatened to take us to the World Trade Organization. We've copied their program, so they knew their, our program was in um, contravention of the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures under the WTO uh, because it was an export subsidy, and therefore we withdrew it. We gave notification that we would withdraw it, and the Australians were quite comfortable that we could take a few years to do so. So um, we had a time frame until the end of 2012 to withdraw the MIDP, and then we worked on the development of the Automotive Production Development Program, which is a program that uh, incentivizes production. It still earns duty credits, but duty credits are not the problem under the rules of the WTO. It's the subsidization of exports. So it's the creation of distortions in external markets that's the problem. So we corrected that. And the APDP essentially re results in firms producing um, vehicles, earning duty credits that they can use to import fully import, imported vehicles or settle their component duty accounts. Either way. And the consequence of that, essentially, is that the automotive industry in South Africa is protected by the 25% duty on CBUs, so on, on fully assembled cars, the 20% on components, but essentially can operate duty-free so long as it operates at a certain level of scale. So you can imagine, so the multinationals have this incentive, uh, but they only have this incentive if they produce in the country. And so you've now, and I think very smartly, you've aligned policy with the strategic imperatives of the multinationals. Developing con economies and something as sophisticated as the auto industry cannot work out where the strategic options are. Those countries don't need to do that. They don't have the ability to, and they shouldn't be doing that in any case. So what they've done is they've essentially created a sort of a healthy operating environment for the multinationals in South Africa, provided they operate at scale. Now, that scale is essentially not possible in the local market because we're highly competitive. It's a highly fragmented market. There's a plethora of models being sold in the market. And so you essentially have to choose a model that is going to be the sweet spot. Where are we capable in South Africa? Um, where is there some volume demand locally? Um, and uh, can we export? And then, of course, these um, the European Partnership Agreement helps us in terms of duty-free access to the EU. We've got a GOA, which gives us duty-free access into the um, US market. And then we've got um, uh, preferential access under SADC into, into, uh, um, into our neighboring countries as well. Although those markets are decimated by pre-owned vehicle imports, they're very small. But the point is we have made ourselves into, into what we call a viable automotive space through the structure of the, the policy. Yeah. I wanted just to ask you, because you, you make the point in, and I, I know this is still a draft because the because the master plan has been, its introduction was delayed last year, probably because of COVID. Um, and you probably changed a lot of things. But in the draft that I have, which was your original draft, you say that the industry needs to resolve a base conundrum to ensure that it's able to break its present growth inertia. Growth will significantly improve industry competitiveness through improved scale economies 
and then the and then you you say the conundrum the conundrum is is basically that um, uh, the 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 productivity and broader competitiveness benefits associated with increased product and production specialization can only be secured if productivity and cost competitiveness first improves to justify increased industry investment. This conundrum will only be resolved if the industry's base competitiveness is first improved, so improving reliability standards, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to be, you've got to be competitive by being competitive. I know I probably oversimplified it or misunderstood that, but it's a knife-edged kind of a thing because even though we've, you say we've become a viable automotive space, you know, the Ford just left Brazil, you know, and watching the uh, major manufacturers peel away from Australia is still, you know, makes, makes me nervous about uh, our future. Are we good enough? So, Peter, so first of all, we have to understand the context in Australia. When I went to Adelaide to look at the closure of the Mitsubishi plant, the South Australian government, to me, appeared very grateful Mitsubishi was closing. Why? Because Mitsubishi employed about 2,000 people, 400 engineers. Adelaide alone, when I went over, was short of 4,000 engineers uh, for the massive mines that were going up near the, near the city. Australia's economic growth has been driven by other uh, critical elements, and they made the decision that they were not going to pour support into an automotive industry when they had a whole lot of other better options. Question for me in a South African context, and as a South African as well, what are better options? Um, and the, the incentive structure that we have is a duty rebate-based one. So you can argue, you know, is there a lot of money being given to the industry? My argument is, but it's rebates. Uh, essentially, the firms import to rebate, and so it becomes quite circular. They yeah. create the demand through their own rebate mechanism. It gives them an advantage over full importers, which um, in essence becomes the government's recognition or support because of the jobs they create in the, in the 115 or 1,000 jobs they create in the local economy. So do we, the, the problem is this, and, and, you, and you rightly point out, the automotive industry, if I use, I mean, I love English football. The automotive industry is the Premier League. It's not league, It's not the championship. It's not League One or League Two. You're up against incredibly competitive players. And the biggest problem we face in the industry, and I've worked in so many of our competing economies, and 35 of them, in fact, the, the problem we have is that the frontier moves quickly. The scale of operation, the levels of sophistication in the automotive industry is advancing very rapidly. The reason why Ford has, has left Brazil, why General Motors has exited a whole range of Southern Hemisphere markets is because they're preparing for the transition to um, what we call new energy vehicles, and they're preparing for the transition towards autonomous vehicles at some point in the future. So many of the big multinationals are no longer prepared to invest behind what they call legacy capital. Yeah. So they'll run these old plants. The moment the old plants need to be refurbished, the moment those plants need a huge injection of capital to bring them up to standard, they'd rather walk away from the investment and uh, retain their capital investment for um, for these new technologies that are emerging. But this this is what this is this is where I wanted to go to. So so we're at that point now. I think the minister has just brought out a new paper on uh, um, on on electric vehicles, um, a green paper. It's out for discussion. But as I understand it, Justin, so the British government has decided that as from 2030, ICE cars, internal combustion engine cars, will no longer be able to be sold in the UK. That would 
obviously mean. And now the UK, as I understand it also, the UK and the EU are by far our biggest markets, right? Yes. In fact, the UK being the single biggest. 70% of our exports. If, we, if, if our export markets are, if, if our biggest ex- single export market, which is Britain, is saying no more um, uh, combustion engines uh, by 2030, that means that British car buyers around about 24 or 25 um, are going to be thinking, well, why should I buy a petrol car now? Because it's going to be, you know, very difficult to f- sell on in whenever. I mean, how do can we get ourselves ready quick enough to start making electric vehicles in time for that kind of change? I mean, it's like dropping a bomb on something. <laughs> okay, so so let's just take a step back from that. So so the evolution of our automotive policy is now the South African Automotive Master Plan which, as you rightly point out, um, kicks in about now. It kicks in in July of this of this year. It's been delayed by six months. It was supposed to start in January of 2021. Core 2, the master plan, is a continuation of the APDP program with a couple of minor adjustments, uh, which are all focused on ensuring that um, there's more local content in South African vehicles, or at least that the incentive is tied directly to, to the amount of local content in, in South African vehicles. So the master plan is very bold. A policy document that talks to the opportunities if the industry is able to deal with critical issues. So it's a it's a document that essentially borrows the um, the strategy that we've seen other de- rapidly developing economies use to advance their industrial capability. And and I can only talk to this master plan. This master plan was developed, was compiled, was completed, and approved by Minister Rob Davies. So the automotive master plan, obviously, in its, in its now in its new execution, is under Minister Patel. But this is a master plan where Minister Patel had zero um, involvement. This was all completed under under Minister uh, Davies' watch. And the brief we were given by, by Minister Davies when we developed this master plan was: How does one take where we are and move us to the place where we could be, if? we had a public-private engagement that dealt with the constraints. So the brief was to be not ruthlessly critical for the sake of being ruthlessly critical, but what are the genuine impediments to the realization of the potential of the South African automotive industry? And I'm not saying we got it right, but we did our best to be as honestly critical of the position of the industry so that we could actually lay a foundation for the development of strategic plans to take the industry forward. And we identified we needed to optimize the domestic market, build regional markets, deepen our technical capabilities, uh, develop skills, um, uh, secure transformation in the right areas. It's very important. This industry needs to be transformed, but we've got to be very careful as to what we mean by transformation because this is a multinational dominated industry. And you do not want to signal to the multinationals that they have to share equity because they will all exit if that is the requirement. So we had to be very careful around how do we structure this transformation agenda, which is critical to the future of the country. And then we needed to look at infrastructure and all of those all of those key elements that are all associated with, with our competitors advancing their industries rapidly. And so that then talks to the question that you've just raised, because in this master plan framework, we were confronted with the challenge of saying, if we're not dealing with the existing issues, if we're not just trying to build better policy based on what's happening now, and we're trying to build policy for the future, so to actually take us to an end destination that we all agree upon, and the stakeholders all agreed, 
the component manufacturers, the vehicle assemblers, the government and the union all agreed that we could get to 1% of global supply. We could get to 60% local content from our 40% base. We could um, execute successful transformation in the industry at tier two suppliers and in dealerships and in authorized repair facilities, that we had the ability to develop skills, build advanced infrastructure, et cetera. So we came up with a plan that was endorsed and supported by all of the stakeholders as a great roadmap. The issue we were always very nervous of in the master plan is that we were very nervous of the technology position of the industry. Because even when we did the, the, um, the master plan from 2016 to 2018, I think we'd finished it, we knew that the, um, the clock was ticking for the internal combustion engine, and we knew that we were going to see vehicles fundamentally transform with more advanced safety features that would ulti- ultimately result in fully autonomous vehicles. What we didn't know is how rapidly it was going to happen. Does it happen faster than you expected? No, not necessarily. So this is the problem. So the problem is that there's a lot of noise being made. So even your question, the UK's banning cars, so is the UK banning passenger cars only or are they banning passenger cars and light commercial vehicles, what we call buckies? Because actually our biggest export is buckies. So they're banning passenger cars, not light commercial vehicles, because it's much more difficult to make a light commercial vehicle battery electric. It's weight, it's wind coefficients, all the, there's all lot of technical parameters that make it more difficult. Secondly, they say they're banning the internal combustion engine. What is an internal combustion engine? So if you add, like I've got a little Lexus hybrid, if I add my, my hybrid's got what's called a soft hybrid, it's got battery packs behind the wheels, it's self-generative energy, makes the car incredibly fuel efficient. That's no longer an ICE, that's now a hybrid. Yeah. The UK is not saying that that's a problem. Yeah. That's an incredibly easy adaptation to make. It's literally, you add another 30 meters to your production assembly line and you employ another four workers to attach the battery pack to the to the body uh, for for the assembly process. There's no crisis, Justin. So there's a there's another there's another little hurdle that I wanted to raise with you. The Britain is one market. The EU is another important one, um, and they've got a devilish scheme, which which has been described to me as like a sort of uh, using BEE as a as an example, where you can have to see, you have to trace the sort of a transformation footprint of whatever it is, your spring or your nuts and bolts or whatever they may be. And what they want to know, what they will want to know soon, is what the carbon footprint of your vehicle is before it is imported into the EU. If your, you know, if your forges and your steel and are, been, are being made with coal-fired electric power, we are going to be in trouble. So, so Peter, it's a good question. The The... Um, the European Union carbon border tax is coming in in January 2023. The details of it are still being ironed out. We don't know whether it's going to apply to the automotive industry or they're only going to select steel and one or two other heavy carbon producers. Um, At the moment, the European Union has incredibly sophisticated and, and quite arduous vehicle fleet emission requirements. So we're not sure whether that is going to um, um be displaced by this EU carbon border tax or how they're going to be accommodated together. Um, And so I think it's a bit early to decide whether it's going to be implemented in a way that is prejudicial to us, but I anticipate so. So your observations are 100% right. Our biggest challenge in South Africa, of course, is we have a a terrible energy mix um, in terms of our own carbon footprint. 
which, by the way, is a huge problem for us because there's no logic to introducing battery electric vehicles in South Africa either because of this. Um, but I just want to go back to your point around the 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 challenge of us engines, well, internal combustion engines. And just remember, there are only two vehicle engine plants in South Africa. Uh, Ford has one. It's a legacy technology as well. It's an old Puma engine. And then VW has an engine plant, but it's only for certain engines. And it's also a bit of a legacy with quite low local content in it. So when we talk about South Africa having a vehicle industry, remember, we assemble cars in South Africa. We have 40% local content. The engine is around 20% of, of, of the value. And that's typically not made in South Africa. So matter of fact, the engines come into South Africa, what we call wet which means even the tubes, the filters, everything's attached to the engines, and then they just get plugged into the cars. So this view that suddenly we go to a battery electric future and the South African industry is in crisis is completely untrue because we just import the engines. So why don't we just import the battery packs? It's no difference. We import them anyway. I, I personally don't think the threat's nearly as substantial as, um, as what is being made out uh, in relation to the transition to battery electric. I think we've got time. We're going to have to make some changes. We're going to have to look very carefully now at the um, the technology shift, how rapidly it's occurring, and what the detail is behind these big public statements. I mean, we know, and South Africa may be, uh, we're all a bit cynical about some of the big political statements yeah. that are made with zero follow-through. My experience of working in other countries is that they're not as bad as you, but they're not that different. They make big statements and then cover their tracks later when they realize they can't um, stick to them either. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that we're facing an imminent cliff or an imminent uh, catastrophe in this space. I think we've got four or five years to make the required adjustments. I think we've got a very good policy framework in place for the auto industry. If you think of how poorly um, the economy's performed, think of how poorly government infrastructure works in this country, and you still think of how successful the auto industry has been, if we fix those issues, uh, imagine the potential for the industry. So the industry in South Africa has been successful in spite of, as opposed to because of the broader issues that are happening in the economy, yeah. which for me is a signal that the policy is robust and that the policy works well. The idea of your master plan, Justin, is to take local content in our vehicles from 40%, 39% actually, to 60%. That sounds a bit ambitious to me. Um, you want to manufacture um, or targets include a doubling of jobs in vehicle and components manufacturing, which almost is is sounds kind of counterintuitive because you would think that you know the more the more components and vehicles you're making, the more machines you're using rather than people. Um, and and um, uh, but nonetheless, doubling those number of jobs from 120,000 to 240,000, and more than doubling vehicle production uh, from 2019 levels from 600,000 to 1.4 million. Is that is that big talk again? It's big talk if we don't get our act together. Um, if we follow through on the master plan, I, I, I think, Peter, what's really important to emphasize here, that master plan is not my document. Yeah. We had days of workshopping with the union leadership. We had days of workshopping with the CEOs of each of the assemblers, and then we had the workshops with them together. We had days of workshops with all of the major component manufacturers. And what we essentially did is we scoped out and wrote up what they agreed to. All of those objectives, all of those master plan elements actually come from the industry itself. Um, so they were all the elements that the industry had articulated as viable targets 
provided we made the structural changes that are needed in order to drive the potential of the industry. So to give you an example of the potential of this industry, if South Africa had a per capita income profile of Australia's, and I know we don't, but if we did, we would consume 2.2 million vehicles a year. So even at our peak, the best year we've ever had was 700,000. We've never come close to our potential because we're a poor economy. If the economy were to grow at the rates that the government keeps telling us they're going to grow in the future, um, there's no reason why we couldn't unlock massive potential. We are sitting in a region which has the ability to consume 2 million vehicles, but chooses to import secondhand motor cars dumped from everywhere else. If those cars were no longer imported in a pre-owned form and they consumed new vehicles, under something like the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, we have huge potential in our own neighborhood to sustain an industry vastly larger than the one we have at the moment. In terms of growth, your, your, your observation on employment is very, very astute. We built in a productivity deflator, so quite a substantial deflator from year to year, and we still achieve very big employment numbers. Now, given the advances in technology, you know, one could question that because it's not just about growth. It's also about the productivity levels you've achieved. But we did build in a real, so take inflation out, we did build in a 3% um, factor improvement per annum for, the, for productivity in the industry. And we still achieved very large um, employment numbers. Justin Barnes, thank you very much for talking to us. And, and to, I know our listeners will be incredibly interested in what you've had to say. I certainly have, and I've learned a, a lot. And I hope you don't mind if, we're, if I call you from time to time to keep us abreast of developments uh, in the motor industry. Um, yeah, thank you. thanks very much for joining us. And uh, I hope the weather's better in Durban than it is down here. Um, <laughs> it's in beautiful the at the moment. <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> thank you, Justin. Yeah, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. We are not as badly uh, positioned as I initially thought we were in the, in the motor car industry. Things are going well ahead of us technologically in our major export markets, but we can keep up. The stuff isn't difficult, as Justin was saying. We import engines and, and flip them into cars. We can do the same with batteries. Please join me again the same time next week again. I'm really enjoying doing these podcasts for you. I hope you're enjoying them as well. And we'll have another interesting guest for you next week. Bye-bye.